You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We are your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week is the second part of a two-part episode series on the state of infectious disease around the world. So if you didn't tune in last week, we tackled all things COVID-19. And this week, we are going to chat about monkeypox and polio. I did not think we'd be talking about polio, Andrea, but here nope. we are. Nope. <laughs> 2022 is the weirdest timeline. Oh my gosh. Um, all right. Well, Andrea, can you just sort of give you know a background on monkeypox, the virus that causes monkeypox. Let's just sort of do a very brief overview. So monkeypox virus, or MPXV, is the virus that causes a disease called monkeypox. It was first identified in 1958 in monkeys, which is why it was named monkeypox. However, non-human or non-primate mammals, particularly rodents, are actually um, presumed to be the, the most common natural reservoir. Monkeypox virus and monkeypox illness is typically restricted to sub-Saharan Africa, with pockets of cases emerging every year or so. The first human case of monkeypox was reported in 1970 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So monkeypox virus is in the pox virus family, which is the same family as smallpox, which is caused by the variola virus, vaccinia virus, cowpox virus, horsepox virus, and others. However, chickenpox is not in this family, so don't get that confused. They're very different families. Chickenpox is a herpes virus. It is caused by the varicella zoster virus. So, yeah, that's a distinction. Monkeypox virus, just like these other pox viruses, including smallpox, which is eradicated from the world, is spread by three main methods of close contact. So typically, it's going to be transmitted from an infected animal to a human. That is typically the most common mode of transmission. It can also be spread by close physical contact, person to person. That's close contact of any kind, not exclusively something like sexual transmission. Um, and that's an important distinction compared to true sexually transmitted infections. But it can also be spread by contaminated objects. So this is our fomite transmission. So if you guys remember early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, we were initially concerned about possible fomite transmission with SARS-CoV-2. Turns out that virus is a little bit more fragile, so it can't really survive on objects as well. Monkeypox virus can, in fact, survive on objects for a period of time. However, it is not as easily transmitted as airborne pathogens like influenza, SARS-CoV-2, or measles. So it does seem to require more close direct contact. There is probably also a contribution from aerosol droplet transmission, but of of course, you're generally going to be in close contact during that period. So monkeypox has got a lot of attention recently because it has started to spread outside of sub-Saharan Africa around the world and as a result is now present in 106 countries around the world. 93.4% of them are countries that normally never see monkeypox. So there is indeed evidence of human-to-human transmission of monkeypox 
right now in 2022. So I think we we should address the fact that monkeypox, you know, we're seeing it concentrated primarily um, among the men who have sex with men population. Mm-hmm. And that's been, I don't know, I want to say problematic from a, from a messaging point of view, because yes. I think it's led to a lot of stigma, a lot of misinformation. And we, we just want to sort of debunk that because monkeypox can affect anyone. Yes. And as, as you said, Andrea, it spreads by close contact of any kind. It does appear to be most prevalent among this population. So we do, you know, there have, there has been a lot of a focus on public health and prevention and, uh, you know, vaccination for this particular population. And as we'll talk about in a moment, we are seeing some positive data right now that we're seeing a, a decline in cases. And I, you know, that has to do a lot with vaccination, which we'll talk about, and also some behavioral changes primarily driven by the MSM population. So kudos to, to that population. So we'll, we'll dig into that in a moment. Epidemiological, you know, investigation is underway, but it appears that there was possibly a small population of men who have sex with men that contracted monkeypox virus and as a result of community-related activities and behaviors, it kind of led to this pocket of continued transmission within that community because in the current outbreak in 2022, outside of Sub-Saharan Africa, 99% of cases are among men. However, if you look within Sub-Saharan Africa, 60% of both current and historical cases are among men. So it's more of a a close to a 50-50 split between men and women. That's super important. And actually, can I, I don't know if now's the time to talk about it, but have you seen, we get DMs, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred a week asking about spread outside of this subpopulation, you know, particularly Mm -hmm. parents who are writing to us saying, you know, my kids are back in school now. Should I be concerned? Should we add monkeypox to the list of things that we have to be concerned about as parents? My kids, I have two kids. They're both in school right now. Um, I am not concerned about monkeypox at this time. One of the things that I always like to say is that this is an evolving situation right now, as we'll dig into in a second, that the trend trends are showing that cases are declining. But that being said, it does seem to be contained mainly to this particular MSM population. And thanks to these preventive measures, we're even seeing some positive data within that population. So no, I'm not concerned about spread in schools. Um, we get asked asked a lot about, you know, should I, when I, if I'm riding the subway, should I wipe down with Purell or whatever, you know, hand sanitizer? If I'm holding the pole in the subway, should I, should I wipe that down? Or should I continue, does masking protect against monkey pox? And I think you, you already said this, you know, really what's driving this is close person to person contact. And although droplets can spread it, it's really not easily uh, transmitted that way. We're not seeing that airborne transmission in the same way that we do with SARS-CoV-2 or measles or, or flu. So masking isn't really the mode of uh, you know prevention that's going to drive down cases of monkeypox. And also that fomite transmission you said is really, is it possible? Yes, but that's not what's really driving cases. So yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we're very averse to fear mongering. So I just wanted yes. to say, you know, I don't <laughs> think that people need to go out thinking they need to wear hazmat suits and, 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 you know, masking and wipe down everything to prevent transmission. Totally agree. You know, right now we're seeing about a little over 63,000 
cases, confirmed cases around the globe. And and as I mentioned, the majority of countries reporting cases are countries that normally don't have uh, monkeypox virus. Of those cases, 99% are in countries that typically do not have monkeypox virus. And that's really, you know, what kind of gives that evidence. Now, monkeypox is certainly no walk in the park. It is quite painful. We'll get into the symptoms in just a moment. But as of right now, case fatality rate is is pretty low. Typically in sub-Saharan Africa, case fatality ratio is around three to six percent. This is much lower than smallpox in particular. What we're seeing right now with this monkeypox virus outbreak is there's been 20 confirmed deaths globally. There's been one recent death in the U.S. that's being autopsied to determine the connection. They are, they are a monkeypox patient. And then there's been one other confirmed death in the U.S. So this gives us a case fatality ratio of 0.03%. So I don't think we need to fear monger. I think a lot of the mitigation measures that have been implemented and are continuing to be implemented are going to be very beneficial. But yes, this is an evolving situation. So let, let's talk about symptoms. Early on in the course of illness, you're going to feel flu-like typically, right? So fever, chills, enlarged lymph nodes, super tired and fatigued, headache, muscle lakes, sore throat, congestion, cough. So no matter what, if we're talking about monkeypox, we're talking about COVID, if we're talking about the flu, if we're talking about anything, if you're not feeling well, you should not be going out in public. And, and you know, I know we've said this and we received some pushback. We know that it's not easy or, you know, not everyone has the ability to call out of work or to get childcare. But if you're feeling unwell, no matter what, the best thing to do, of course, is to is to stay home. A lot of these symptoms sound similar to to COVID and and to the flu. You know, as we said, they're flu like. So, you know, it, it's not a bad idea to to test for for COVID. If you're feeling unwell for a, for a long period of time, you might want to go in for a viral panel to rule out things like the flu. But if you are, at a, you know, we keep talking about this MSM population, but if you're in this population in particular, monkeypox should be something that is in the, in the back of your mind. And it's certainly worth going to seek medical attention and, and finding out what it is that you are sick with. So then after about one to four days, uh, there are these characteristic blister-like rashes. And these blisters can appear on or near the genitals or the anus or other areas like hands or feet, torso, face, or mouth. Andrea, do you want to talk about the different phases of of the rash? Yeah, so these blisters progress and and they progress over a period of weeks. So typically the course of illness is going to progress from two to four weeks, depending on your immune system and and overall illness severity. So the first phase of the blisters or the rash is the macular phase. And this basically means that you have discolored lesions. So your skin has changed color, but the, the lesions are still flat. The papular phase is when they are raised now. So papular, you can think of as they, they kind of look a little like warts maybe. And these will also be discolored typically. Now, again, if you have different skin tones, the amount of discoloration is going to vary. The vesicular phase is when these papules have now become filled with fluid. So these are now like a blister. And these blisters are filled with fluid that contain lots and lots of virus. So these are a particular concern where you don't want to come in contact with these fluid-filled blisters because that is really the easiest way to get infected. And then the pustular phase, which is, you know, 
I'm sure you all conjure an image with that, but um, these blisters, these fluid-filled blisters are now filled with pus, with extra fluid. They eventually rupture, they scab over, and eventually heal. And that process takes a period of weeks. You are contagious the entire time you have symptoms, including when the blisters are scabbed over. Those scabs will still contain virus that can infect somebody. And if you guys remember our history of vaccines, we talked about the early variolation for smallpox. They took those dried up smallpox scabs. Dried up monkeypox scabs will contain monkeypox virus. So after that lovely um, description, (laughs) thank you, Andrea, I'm going to jump to the good news, which is that the current outbreak appears to be slowing. So new infections are starting to decline uh, in some large cities where the virus hit early and spread quickly. And while there's still uncertainty. The CDC is projecting that the outbreak will, quote, most likely continue to grow very slowly over the next few weeks. And there are two primary reasons uh, or, or, or things that we think are driving that slow growth in, in cases and why, why we're optimistic. The first is vaccination. And Andrea, I'm going to turn it over to you in just a sec to talk about the two vaccines that are available. Um, but the second I just want to mention is due to behavioral change. So much of the improvement is being attributed to temporary changes in sexual behavior. So we're seeing that single partnerships, so we're talking about one-time sexual encounters that men who have sex with men report are down. In fact, 50% have stopped doing them or have reduced them. We're seeing less anonymous sex, all the things that we advise as temporary measures until we get vaccines into people's arms, and then we can sort of move on, let's hope, from monkeypox. So thanks to behavioral change and thanks to vaccines, that's why we have some optimism. So Andrea, do you want to talk about, you focus more on on the vaccines and vaccine efforts? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Jess, you made a great point. I I pulled some numbers really quickly. So, you know, the expansion of the vaccine, because we only had very small stockpiles, um, obviously because monkeypox virus is not typically present in the U.S. We've been able to ramp that up since July. Um, So if we look at daily new cases, the week ending September 14th, we were at average of 170 new cases per week. And this is compared to 461 new cases, daily new cases as of the week ending August 10th. So we've really slowed down um, the rate of new cases. And again, that's attributed to both community level alterations in behavior. Thank you, everybody. And also uh, people getting those vaccines. So there are two vaccines available that can prevent monkeypox. The one that we'll focus on is uh, Genios. So this is the only vaccine approved in the U.S. by the FDA for monkeypox. It's actually approved to prevent monkeypox and smallpox. And originally the FDA approval was for adults 18 and older. So this is a two-dose vaccine. It is administered subcutaneously, so it is not intramuscularly. It's a slightly different angle of injection and delivery. And these doses are given 28 days apart, and it is very important if you are eligible or you are getting the monkeypox vaccine that you get both doses. On August 9th, the FDA actually expanded the use of Genios to include individuals younger than 18 who are at high risk of exposure for monkeypox, and these would also receive the two-dose vaccine subcutaneously 28 days apart. And they also expanded the use of Genios for 
intradermal injection for individuals 18 and older. So intradermal injections are a little bit trickier to administer where you actually slide the needle in between the layers of skin and you make a little bubble. It's kind of like how the tuberculosis test is administered. So it does require a little bit of training and it's not a common route of administration, but this will actually allow us to administer five times more doses with the same amount of vaccine. And early data suggests that the immune response between the traditional sub-Q administration versus the one-fifth dosage intradermally elicits similar immune responses. So this allows us to stretch the stockpile that we have. Now, retrospective data is really the most of what we have because we don't have common outbreaks of monkeypox and we certainly don't have outbreaks of smallpox anymore. But those data suggest the vaccine is 85% effective, but it's unclear how that will translate to the current outbreak. But if we look at the actual reduction in case numbers, uh, it does seem to be having some effect, which is great. Elsewhere, there's also a live replicating vaccinia virus-based vaccine. So vaccinia is a related but milder virus in the same pox virus family. This is um, ACAM 2000, and this is approved for smallpox prevention, but it is authorized for monkeypox under an expanded access investigational new drug protocol, which is an EAIND. So because this is a live replicating vaccinia virus-based vaccine, you cannot receive ACAM 2000 if you're immunocompromised, if you have heart conditions. It can't cause smallpox. It can't cause monkeypox. But because it contains a live, milder but related virus, um, if you're immunocompromised, it, it can be risky. Now, this one is administered using the old school method. If anybody listening has ever gotten the smallpox vaccine, it uses something called a bifurcated needle. So it's basically, it looks like a needle, not an injectable needle, but like like a, like a pin almost that has two forks. So it's like a little forked, sharp needle. You dip it in the vaccine and then you prick the person's arm about 15 times, which is essentially how smallpox vaccine was administered when it was administered. And this creates little holes in the arm, which introduce the vaccine into the skin, just into the skin layers. And it creates this little pustule. It's like a little, little mini pox. And that creates a scab and a pustule and all that. Now, during that period, you actually have to take really good care of that pustule because, again, you're growing this vaccinia virus in that. And once that scab is healed, that's where you're going to have protection. And that, again, that takes about 28 days. So typically in the U.S., we've been rolling out the Genios vaccine. I believe we've had administered 540,000 doses so far, which is amazing. And the highest proportion of individuals that have received this, this is um, men that are 25 to 39 years old. We still have confirmed 24,000 cases in, it, across the U.S., so we do have the largest proportion of monkeypox cases in the world right now. But as just mentioned, these are starting to decline as far as the rate goes. So I know we want to go on to talk about polio. I guess the, the final thing I'd say in a, on the note that you just mentioned is that, yes, we're seeing improvement. Thank you, vaccines. Thank you uh, to, to changes in sexual behavior. But I just want to note that the progress is uneven. And while overall we're seeing a stabilization and even a decline in monkeypox cases. We're actually seeing new cases rise in some parts and really disproportionately affecting certain minority populations, such as Black and Latino men. So, you know, not out of the woods just yet, but thanks again to preventive efforts, to 
public health to immunology. We are confident that we are heading in the right direction, but we still have some work to do. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. With that, I think we should move on to monkeypox. Uh, so if I could just set the stage. You mean polio. <laughs> what did I say? I said monkeypox. Monkey. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Yeah. We don't, all these uh, viruses on the brain. All right. So polio. Sorry. So on September 9th, New York State declared a state of emergency as a response to the emerging polio virus situation. This sounds frightening to, to many people and we understand that, but declaring a state of emergency sort of enables a lot of things to happen and to really trigger an emergency response that's going to help us combat further spread of the virus. So what it does, this emergency order allocates resources and funds to address the situation. So now EMS workers, certified nurse midwives, and pharmacists can administer polio vaccines. It also requires that vaccine records be sent to the State Department of Health in order to identify regions that have unvaccinated populations so that we can really mobilize and focus vaccine efforts in those regions. And this is going to be a coordinated effort throughout New York State, as well as local and national health authorities. Finally, it also authorizes physicians and certified NPs, nurse practitioners, to issue non-patient standing orders for polio vaccines. So Andrea, I know, you know, you'll set the stage about uh, polio virus and what it is, but just, just to set the stage here, I just want to allay concerns that typically it leads to mild or even asymptomatic illness in most cases, but it can lead to serious illness, including paralysis and death. And so, you know, this all centers around one particular county uh, where this originated in New York State, particularly Rockland County. Um, I just, you know, I do want to address the elephant in the room that this is a, we see extremely low uh, vaccine uptake in this county where we have a very large faith-based community. And no, this is not intended to stigmatize that contained faith-based community, but you know, this is a problem um, where we're seeing people refuse vaccines on the basis of of religion. And so we just, we have to be aware of these things and maybe focus some of our public health and education efforts in those places. You know, this is really, it answers why are we talking about polio right now? Because there are cases of polio in the U.S. So polio had been declared eliminated from the U.S. in 1979, which means that no cases of wild polio had originated in the U.S. since then. Occasionally, polio virus is brought into the country by 
people outside of the country or people who have traveled. And typically, this is amongst travelers who are unvaccinated because those are the ones that get infected. Vaccination for polio is almost 100% effective. But yeah, let me let me take a step back really quickly. So polio or poliomyelitis is caused by an infection with another virus, polio virus. There are three poliovirus serotypes, one, two, and three. Um, it's important to understand that if you're immune to type one, that does not mean that you are immune to type two. They are distinctly different enough that you need protection against all three. And as just mentioned, most polio infections are mild or even asymptomatic, but it can lead to paralysis and death. Polio is very, very contagious, and a person can spread the virus even if they're asymptomatic. Typically, the virus will enter the body through the mouth, usually through fecal-oral route, meaning your hands are contaminated with feces containing a virus from an infected person. So hand hygiene is so important. Respiratory and and mouth-to-mouth transmission, so oral-to-oral transmission, can occur, but less commonly. Um, It's really this fecal-oral route. And that's also why it is of highest concern for young children when their immune system is less well-developed and when they are perhaps practicing less than ideal hand hygiene. So symptoms are, again, flu-like. Let's get back to those flu-like symptoms. So it could be polio too. Fatigue, fever, headache, stiffness, muscle pain, vomiting. Incubation period is a little bit long for polio. It can take up to 30 days after infection for symptoms to appear. And that whole time you can be shedding virus in your stool where other people can pick it up. In children, about 70% of all polio infections are asymptomatic, but again, you're still contagious. 24% of polio infections typically lead to mild illness, which is called abortive poliomyelitis. Typically, you're going to get those flu-like symptoms, low fever, sore throat, and typically recover within a week. However, 1% to 5% of polio infections lead to what we call non-paralytic aseptic meningitis. So meningitis is inflammation of the meninges, which is the lining, the membranes around the central nervous system. Um, so this, these symptoms would include stiffness of neck, back, legs. Typically, you'll have also those flu-like symptoms leading up to that. You may also have some abnormal nerve sensation, so limb pain, back pain, neck pain. You may also have um, headache or vomiting. Again, symptoms here typically last about 10 days, and you will recover. Now, in the very rare proportion, we have the less than 1% of polio cases that result in flaccid paralysis. And flaccid paralysis basically means that you lose all sensation and the ability to move your body. And this can be permanent in many cases of paralytic polio. There are three classifications of paralytic polio. So we have spinal polio, um, and that is the most common. It's typically, well, during the outbreak in the 60s and 70s, it accounted for about 80 percent of the paralytic polio cases. Typically, you have asymmetric paralysis that is typically involving the legs. So one leg or one half of the body becomes flaccid and unable to move. So it goes limp, essentially. Bulbar polio is upper half of the body. So you're going to get facial, oral, pharyngeal, and respiratory muscle paralysis. And this can be more severe, of course, because if your respiratory muscles are paralyzed, that can impact your ability to breathe. That's going to be about 2% of cases. That's the rarest. And then the other third type is bulbospinal polio. And this is actually a combination of bulbar and spinal paralysis. And this is about 20% of cases. 
So of that less than 1% of polio infections that result in paralysis, within that group, the case fatality ratio is 2 to 5% among children. It's actually much greater among adults. It's up to 30% among adolescents and adults. And if you have the bulbar involvement, so where you have the paralysis of the respiratory and the oropharyngeal muscles, that can actually go all the way up to 75% fatality rate. So if you actually look at the finite numbers of polio infections, of paralytic polio infections, of fatalities, you technically have a lower case fatality rate than COVID-19, but this is still a huge public health concern. Good thing is we have a vaccine that can prevent this. <laughs> and we have a vaccine that actually had prevented it and eliminated it from the U.S. in 1979. Before we get there, and I think we should actually focus on, you know, everyone wants to know, okay, what does this mean? Is there a polio vaccine? You know, is there a, a booster that I should be getting? Or how do I know that I received the full series? So let, let's talk about that. I just sort of want to just remind folks, why are we even talking about polio right now? And I feel like I'm working backwards in time, but because <laughs> I talked about the state of emergency declared in September. But now I'll remind folks that on July 18th, there was a case of paralytic polio that was identified in an unvaccinated adult. And so they sequenced the stool samples and determined that this was a vaccine-derived poliovirus, VDPV, which means that this person was in contact with someone who either recently received the oral polio vaccine or another unvaccinated person who was in contact with someone who recently received the oral polio vaccine and then became infected as well. But the oral polio vaccine is not administered in the U.S., so this is linked to international spread. I forget the exact year that they stopped giving it. Do you 2000. remember? 2000. Yep. Okay. So there are two vaccines that that prevent polio. There is the... the uh, inactivated polio vaccine, which we call the Salk vaccine, that was that was licensed in 1955, and then the oral polio vaccine, which is called the Sabin vaccine, that was licensed in 1961. The inactivator, the Salk vaccine, is injected into the arm, and that one contains an inactive virus, so it can't replicate. It, it just simulates that immune response. The oral polio vaccine is a weakened or attenuated virus. However, the advantage to this is that it doesn't need to be refrigerated. It's very shelf-stable. It's a liquid. It's administered orally. It actually is typically administered in a sugar cube. So that can be administered widely around the world. When we got polio under control, we shifted from the oral polio vaccine to the inactivated polio vaccine. And, and since 2000, we don't administer the oral polio vaccine in the U.S., However, the oral polio vaccine is used in other countries. Now, the reason we don't administer that anymore in the U.S. is because there is a very, very small chance that the weakened virus in the oral polio vaccine can revert to essentially a full-strength virus, and that can lead to what we call vaccine-derived polio virus, where it's shed in the stool of someone who had been recently vaccinated and someone who is unvaccinated gets infected through contact with that stool. Now, this is typically very, very rare, but in places where there 
is almost no polio present and also have low vaccine coverage, this can lead to the spread of polio amongst those unvaccinated people. So, and I know we're, uh, you know, we don't want to take too much more time talking about this. We're trying to keep these episodes tight, but there's been wastewater surveillance that is indicating that polio is actually, it's spreading beyond that initial case. You know, whereas it was originally found in Rockland County, now it's been found in wastewater samples in, uh, in Sullivan County, Orange County, Nassau County. I believe those are all in New York. I don't know. All in New York. All in New York, right. So let's just talk practically here. So if you are, just to echo, I think, Andrew, you you already said this multiple times, if you are fully vaccinated, you do not need to panic. Vaccination against polio is nearly 100% effective. That being said, we really weren't expecting there to be a resurgence in polio. So it's not like we, I hate to say this, but we don't know with 100% certainty that's the case, right? Because, you know, we, we haven't seen polio uh, circulating here for, for many, many right. years. <laughs> um, but that is our current understanding, and we are confident in that. And some folks are, are, you know, they're not sure whether they were fully vaccinated. So the first place to go is, you know, ask your parents, maybe try to track down your, uh, your pediatrician, try to access those vaccine records. But if you're not sure, Andrea, do you want to tell folks, should should they go ahead and get their titers checked against polio? That's a that's a question we get a lot. If you don't know if you've been vaccinated, you certainly can request to get your titers tested. It will be moderately useful. The issue is, is that many labs aren't set up to do them because we, again, don't have polio. Typically in the U.S., um, we, we don't want to run the risk of overwhelming lab facilities. I would say if you are in one of these areas that have had wastewater surveillance positive cases and you're living within a community that has very low vaccine coverage or your family or your community have a history of low vaccine coverage or not vaccinating against routine childhood illnesses, uh, it might be worthwhile. But you certainly can go and get the polio vaccine if you're relatively confident that you were not vaccinated as a kid and you can't track down those records. Um, It's not going to be harmful if you're an adult and you have to catch up on that vaccine. But if you do know for sure that you were fully vaccinated, there is no reason reason. to go ahead and, and get those titers checked. Correct. I do want to note that, you know, for example, Rockland County has a polio vaccination rate of only 60%. The state average in New York is 79%. Countrywide, we're aiming for 90% coverage and above. So these counties have really low vaccine coverage, and and the disparity is really in these faith-based communities that often congregate and and live in close-knit neighborhoods within these counties. So I guess maybe the only silver lining here is that there's been a massive public health uh, outreach effort, and we've seen over 5,000 polio vaccines administered in Rockland County since this um, news came out this summer. So that is good news. Let's hope that that trend continues. We have to continue our uh, education and science communication, which is what we are doing. And, (laughs) you know, please, if if you're a parent of a young child who's even... I I can't even form words when I talk about this. Don't, don't skip vaccines. Don't space vaccines. Get your kids vaccinated per the recommended schedule. We have tons of content on this. There is absolutely no reason to space it out. Overwhelming your child's immune system is not a thing. Let's get our kids vaccinated. Let's get our vaccine, all vaccine uptake 
up to over 90%, please, that we do not see a resurgence of all of these previously eliminated and eradicated (laughs) illnesses. I have to say, these two episodes have been a little bit of a downer as someone who has worked in infectious disease immunology. Didn't think that I would be devoting so much time to, to talking about polio, but here we are. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. We hope you learned a thing or two. If you want more unbiased science, check out our Substack. As we've talked about, this gives you a direct line to Jess and myself, access to our private Facebook group, monthly live Q&As, and you even get to vote on future topics. So you can check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. Next episode, we're going to tackle another topic that we hear about in the news all the time, CBD and THC. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 monkeypox, polio, and other topics on our social media. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah.